You are tired of average. You want more out of life. You know you're capable of something greater. This show will help you become resilient in your home, at work, and in your community. Welcome to the Resilient Humans Podcast with your host, Kevin Wood. Welcome back to the Resilient Humans Podcast. And man, am I excited for my guest today. A recent graduate from UNB's counseling program and happy to have found employment uh, in the counseling field here in Moncton. Also a mother of two beautiful cats, wifey to superstar Matt Robertson, and recently had the honor of acting alongside a tremendous actor in town, me. (laughs) (laughs) Bethany Robertson, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Kevin. This is awesome. (laughs) So man, we, we obviously got to... This is our first kind of uh, time meeting each other was when we were uh, rehearsing for our play. Mm-hmm. And obviously we got to know each other on a deeper level because mm-hmm. of the intimacy of, of what we had to go through. <laughs> yes. Um, and we talked a lot um, prior to going on stage and performing in front of a crowd. So mm-hmm. um, thank you for coming. And I hope that we can get get our message or your message across to the, the people that are listening uh, about some of the things that we talked about off stage. Yeah. 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 I remember we'd be, we were supposed to be reciting lines <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know if you were just being really gracious towards me or what, but all of a sudden, you know, we would just be talking about life and connecting on another level. And, and I think the lines came eventually, but yeah. sometimes you have to connect on another level first. Yeah. So, yeah, no, it was well worth it. It was a good, uh, a balance of everything that we needed to do and Mm -hmm. things that we wanted to do. So, yeah. Oh, it was great. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me, let's start off. Why did you want to become a counselor in the first place? Mm, Yeah, it's definitely a career I, I honestly never envisioned for myself. I always thought like I'm just going to go get an English degree and then I'm going to follow that up with my ed degree. I'm going to teach English, maybe even do something at the university level after whether or not I get my like PhD. And then life just took its toll. I mean, the timing of when I graduated with my ed degree, there weren't a lot of positions available. And so I did the whole supplying thing and I noticed in my own body and my own mind all the anxiety that was coming from just the unknown, not knowing where I'd be from one day to the next. And it, it would be the silliest things, like even not knowing where I was going to, going to park, right? I've never been or seen the layout of a certain school before. Mm-hmm. Some teachers are really good at leaving lesson plans, but other teachers, let's be honest, maybe that falls to the wayside. 100%. I've been <laughs> yeah. there. I know, I know like. you have. Yeah. And so I took a little break from teaching and I actually ended up working at Crandall University. And it was an incredible experience because I was working day to day, like right on the front line with students. And I was in the registrar's office and I noticed that Yes, I was helping them with their course selections. Yes, I was helping them organize their their courses and like maybe letters of completion, all the paperwork, transcripts, things like that. But I also started to notice people were coming to my desk just to talk. And I'm a people person. I'm definitely an what? extrovert. No. Yeah. <laughs> and I started to notice that some of the things that I was seeing involved me giving some pieces of advice that I didn't necessarily feel qualified to give. 
Now, I'm not saying that in order to give advice, you have to get a degree in psychology or you have to be a counselor or all of these things. We definitely all have things to offer. But something clicked in my mind, like maybe there are some skills here that I need to really look into and see if there's any value in getting more education. And I started applying and I looked into the UNB Fredericton's their counseling program. And I'm happy to say I am not looking back. Um, I did go back into the teaching realm and I ended up teaching at a local high school. Absolutely loved it. Um, But I was really longing for that one-on-one and being able to really have the time to sit down and, and not just, you know, have 15 minutes to talk to somebody about what they're going through. You know, and sometimes in the counseling field, like an hour, it seems like a long time, 50 to 60 minutes, but really there's a lot of things. It's still not enough, right? And so I haven't looked back. I'm so pleased to be doing what I'm doing. And right now I'm working with um, children who are age 10 and up. And I think my, I don't know, my most mature client has been probably in their 80s. And so really I have a, a, a large window of people that I'm working with and I find that to be fascinating because I'm curious about people. I want to know what makes them tick. I want to know their experiences and I, I just haven't looked back. I'm so pleased and that's kind of maybe like a medium version of how I got to where I am. Cool. So thank you for asking that. Um, I've I've identified this for you, but I feel like the there's a connection piece that's important for you and you didn't get that when you were in front of a class of however many people but you can get that connection piece when you're one-on-one with somebody and i full-heartedly agree with you now don't get me wrong i still love teaching and i still like coaching a a big class filled with people I, i get energy from that but I also get energy from the one-on-one connection that I have when somebody's sitting across from me at a desk and we're, we're mm-hmm. like diving into more, we'll call it deeper conversations, more mm-hmm. meaningful conversations than opposed to that surface level. Hi, how you doing? How's your weekend? Okay, like that's fine and dandy, but mm-hmm. I, I, I as well enjoy that connection that I can make with people mm-hmm. because I find you can have more impact with that connection so and I really believe that people crave that now more than ever yeah and especially going through this pandemic like when I was teaching and we were teaching through the pandemic and then at the high school level we had half the class in front of us one day and then the next day the other half like talk about a bizarre experience for everybody right nobody we had never done that before and what I started to notice so I was teaching while I was taking my master's courses and I was starting to notice I'm already implementing some of the things that I'm learning in my program in the classroom. So even something like, and I don't know, other teaching professionals call me crazy because I I know as a teacher, you only have so much time to get through your curriculum, but I kid you not, I would take 15 minutes at the beginning of every single class and When I'm going through my attendance, you know, Kevin, instead of you saying here, I would pose a question. And that question would either be a would you rather, you know, would you rather eat cookies or cake? 
would you rather go on a vacation or, you know, whatever it might be. I might ask a fun question three times a week. But the other days I was asking scaling questions. And I'd say things like, let's actually check in with each other. Because we've, we are going through a pandemic. And let's be honest, sometimes we're not checking in to see where we are at. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to model that and also maybe encourage empathy in the classroom because you might not realize what somebody else is facing that day. And so I'd look at everybody and I'd say, the question today is, we're going to do a rating scale, one to 10, one being it's not a great day, 10 being this is the best day you've ever had. And when I call your name, just let me know where you're at. Now in high school, six, 60% is a pass. And it was astonishing how many times I would check in and these kids were at a four. Yeah. They're at a four would, and a half. Would you have them, would they say it out loud when you called their name? This is the fascinating part about it. When you make space for people, you'll be surprised how many will open up. It's very rare that I would have somebody in my class just say, here, which is a sign, let's skip over that, move on to the next mm -hmm. person. And the people in the class, like there was no judgment. Right. More often than not, I would say 90% of the time, like an astonishingly large amount of these kids were like, yeah, I want to talk. And they weren't shy to say, I'm only mm -hmm. a five today. And I'd say, okay. And I would take the time and I'd say, what would have to happen for you to go from a five to a five and a half? Like we're not talking like leaps and bounds. We're talking baby steps yep. for how you can make yourself feel better. What would have to happen? And already they're getting in a mindset of, oh yeah, maybe there are some things I can do for myself or I can express that can maybe make me a little bit closer to that passing grade. And sometimes we would joke. Sometimes it'd be something as silly as, oh, when this class is over. You know, and I, I'm, I'm definitely open to taking like a dig at myself um, and I, we'd laugh and joke. But oftentimes it was like, you know, I'd be able to get through this test. This test just has to be behind me. Next period has to be behind me because they're stressed about it. Or maybe they just are thirsty. <laughs> they have to go to the bathroom. As silly as that sounds, it can really bump somebody from a five to a five and a half. Yeah. And I think when we talk about mental health, we have to start thinking about the little things that we can do to challenge our thinking so that we can see some drastic improvements in our mood, how we treat other people, how we increase our empathy. And uh, that was just something like I, I saw so much value in that 15 minutes. And then, I mean, the great thing as a teacher is when the students connect with you, they're probably more likely to do their work. Yep, 100%. <laughs> so maybe I was a little manipulative there. I don't know, to, to get the kids focused. But I, I genuinely wanted to know, like, let's check in. How are you? And uh, and then that just set up the class for, for success. I agree. I'm th as you were talking, I'm thinking back to my last year of teaching. Um, it wasn't, it's funny, it wasn't in the class that the connections were made. I, I would eat my lunch, not in the staff room, but in the gym. And I would allow kids to come in. And if they wanted to eat with me, they could do that. And it's fine. It was those connections that really sparked the impact. And I mentioned on this podcast before, but I ran into one years, like years later. And I didn't recognize him. And he goes, you changed my life. I'm like, mm -hmm. what? 
He goes, yeah, you used to talk about like the way you eat and all this. And, um, he goes, I, I just changed everything. I changed the way I eat. I don't eat junk anymore. Like everything's clean and raw and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm more healthy now than I've ever been. Wow. I was like, and I wasn't, you know, we played dodgeball and basketball and stuff <laughs> and that, that doesn't do shit. But when, it, when we actually talked and, and had those one-on-ones, um, between the classes that was that was where the magic was made Mm. um do you have an area of counseling that you feel the most passionate about um well right now I think just because of the things that I've witnessed and experienced being a teacher um I'm just seeing such an increase in anxiety Mm -hmm. you know and it's definitely when you see it in other people and you see the sometimes the destruction that it can cause in people's lives. You start to kind of hold a mirror up to yourself. You know, are there things in my life that I'm, I'm maybe needing to face or do I have some anxiety I need to learn some skills for? Um, so I, I'm really drawn to the anxiety piece and how that links with feelings of depression. I'm also feeling very passionate about furthering my education so that I can learn skills to, to work with kids. You know, I I believe that if we can bring up a generation that's not afraid to be honest and raw and and talk about the things that are sometimes really hard to talk about, and if we can start implementing some strategies at a young age, then that can only be like a ripple effect as they're growing, as they're making new friends, going off to university, starting new jobs, you know, falling in love, creating families – I mean, this can only rub off and um, really impact the other people around them, right? So I, I really believe in starting young with some of these strategies, um, coping strategies for anxiety, um, emotional regulation. I don't remember talking a lot about that as a kid. I remember going to the guidance counselor and I remember them having programs about when you're in conflict, how do you mm. express yourself? I feel blank. Like, you know, I feel I feel sad when you right. oh, I remember sit those. with my friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's important. So I don't want to say that they haven't been, we haven't been trying to teach emotional regulation to our kids. But I think now... We've come so far in the field of mental health, but there's still so much more we can do, right? There's there's more um, training that we all need for how to show and, and express emotions to children. I think it's important that we learn the skills as adults for how we can regulate ourselves because if a child is having a temper tantrum and they're on the floor and they're just flipping their lid rationality goes out the window exactly and somebody has to model it Mm -hmm. whether that's a teacher a parent a friend whoever else is in the room that's older than them they're looking to us so if we have a bunch of adults who are not able to regulate their emotions then we might be putting an unrealistic expectation on the child to be able to get over it or move on or deal with your feelings when they don't have somebody who's actually in front of them talking them through what it means to be angry, what it means to be sad. If a parent or a friend or a teacher cannot regulate for a child, then that child should not be expected to be able to regulate. So I feel very passionately about 
um, informing teaching these skills to adults so that it can have that ripple effect with kids. And I feel very passionately about working with kids, teaching them about their emotions, not to be afraid of them. Mm. You know, in, in, on one hand, anxiety can really harm us. It can prevent us from doing things that we love. But on the other hand, there are times where anxiety has actually served us well. And I think reframing that is a huge step for being curious about anxiety. You know, it has such a negative connotation and certainly it can. It can be negative, but it can also be a good thing, right? When a woman is preparing to have a baby, anxiety can actually be a good thing to a certain degree as they're preparing for what their body's about to go through. When you think of a, um, a mama bear protecting their cubs, when the cub is in danger, what does the mama bear do? There's anxiety there. They're looking after their baby. They fight for their baby. Anxiety there has actually served them well for survival. And so I think the reframing that we have to do is really kind of looking at anxiety in a new light and challenging kids to ask themselves, when did anxiety actually help me? Did, you know? it, did it serve me at any point? Yes. And if you can even pinpoint one area where anxiety, like you recognized it, maybe you were nervous about something, you started sweating before a speech, and then you got through it, and those feelings of pride and all those other endorphins start to kick in, you can see, oh yeah, this anxiety happened because I really cared about this, and it helped get me through. It's So you said you want to help them not be afraid of their feelings may correct me if i'm wrong but is that also just understanding their feelings 100 percent. right so it's not just being afraid it's also understanding what is what is this emotion that i'm feeling and we want we want kids to know what that is I, i'm just thinking of about my daughter like mm. she she has some anxiety and we can see it and it's it's very prominent i don't and my my wife talks with her often about it because she's experienced it, just not at that age. And so that's mm. that's the hard part for us is, you know, we never experienced that type of anxiety at that young age. And so how is it that you talk to them about it? How do you help them understand it when you don't understand it yourself because you were not in that situation at their age? Because mm -hmm. adult anxiety... I believe, looks different than childhood anxiety. Is that accurate? I know there's there's yeah. got to be some similarities, yeah. but there also has to be some differences there too. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know. I think it's kind of like comparing an apple and an orange. Mm -hmm. Like they're both fruit, yeah. <laughs> just kind of different types. Yeah. Um, but I mean, when you're an eight-year-old and your friend is ignoring you and you might be nervous right. to go to school that's pretty big, mm. you know? And the when you think about maybe the issues that a child has to face versus maybe more adult issues that come into play, okay. more responsibility, I think we have to just do it justice that there's definitely some similarities, but I wouldn't necessarily say it's worse because it's just, it just depends on, on that situation, depends on the responsibilities. I do think it's a bit of a, like an apple and orange comparison really because when you're eight, you feel like it's your whole world yeah. if your friend 
doesn't want to sit with you on the bus. If a new person comes to town and you're pushed aside. And when that's your responsibility, going to school, going to maybe your sports commitments or your church commitments, that is your world. Whereas, you know, an adult, the the pressures, the things that we face at work, our marriage, relationships, those are our world. And so it's just, it's a little... Yeah, it's it's hard to say. Yeah, it makes sense. I've had a talk with her. She has this fear of dying in her sleep, mm. and I I basically told her that that's an irrational fear because it's, it's not going to happen. Every time you've woken up, every every morning you you've woken up, and she asked if I was afraid of anything, and I said yes, worms, mm. like earthworms, mm. and I go, but that's also an irrational fear because worms can't hurt me if i was buried in worms i'd be fine would it be scary sure but i'd be fine and just like when you go to sleep tonight you're gonna wake up tomorrow and you'll also be fine and then she went right to bed Mm. (laughs) so just having that she wasn't in a high anxiety state Mm -hmm. she just had a question and i feel that was the best time to have a rational conversation with her now if she was amped up and in full-blown, like, anxiety mode mm-hmm. and, like, heaving and whatnot. Obviously not the best time to, let's have a rational conversation about irrational fears mm. and how those don't make any sense. Um, then it would be more of, like, a come in, get closer, provide comfort in that mm-hmm. moment in time. So, yeah. yeah. I love that you brought that example up because, number one, like, amazing that you're able to share the things that – maybe you are afraid of that's part of teaching this emotional regulation is like okay I'm going to give you an example in my life and I'm sure your daughter looks up to you a lot both literally and figuratively right but for you to share that and be really raw and honest with her it shows a vulnerability and teaches her it's okay to talk about these things that she's afraid of right as irrational as they might seem for her to even let that out if it's not in her head anymore that's setting her up for success so a lot of the work I do is I get people to journal and write things down if you're up in the middle of the night have your like notes app on your phone or a notepad something beside you so that you can just get it out of your head the longer the thought lingers in your mind the more likely it's going to spiral. The more likely it's going to keep you up. The more likely it's going to impact how you feel, which impacts your behavior, right? And so amazing job as a dad. I mean, I commend you for just being able to be vulnerable with her. And I think the other thing I would say there is even if, even if your daughter was in her most heightened state of anxiety, in that situation, I think you can talk about these irrational thoughts. The first step is regulating. And so when I'm working with kids, the first thing that I will do before I dive into something like cognitive behavior therapy, which deals with learning how to handle these thoughts, um, the first thing I'll do is teach regulation. So I'll do something called an anxiety scale. And so I literally get the kids, we get on the whiteboard, we get the construction paper out, and we do a scale one to 10. Most people can identify when 10 out of 10, when they're freaking out, when they are at their worst, most anxious. Most people know what they are like. They know the signs in their body. 
Mm. So whether it's they're screaming, they've lost their voice, they're sweating, they've locked themselves in a room, nobody can talk to them, they've even maybe wanted to go and run, right? Whatever those signs are in their body, I get kids to identify it because they know what is happening in their body when they're at a heightened state. And then I get them to say, okay, what's your one? When are you most chill? How do you know? What's your body telling you? Well, my heart rate's low. Um, maybe I'm happy. Maybe I'm just like relaxed. I'm hanging out with the dogs. I'm just kind of not thinking about anything stressful. And I get them to write that on the scale. And then with help from parents or even some friends, we start filling in the scale. And if a kid is able to see how their body is showing up for them, showing them where they're at on the scale, then they can quickly identify even when they're st- like when they're starting to feel anxious. Oh, I'm a four right now. I'm noticing I'm I'm starting to get like heat in my cheeks, right? Like my actual temperature is increasing. My heart rate is increasing. That's that's me at a four. Maybe at a five, they're starting to kind of get loud. They're starting to like talk over their parents, right? And then maybe it progresses after that. But it's so important for kids to be able to write down to know exactly how their body is showing up for them and giving them the signs that something's not right. Because we don't want to be noticing anxiety when we're at a 10 Mm. or an 8. Because from personal experience, I can't speak for you, but when I'm at like a 6 on my anxiety scale, I jump really quickly to an 8 which jumps really quickly to a nine. It's harder to catch it the higher the number of our scale. So if we can teach kids the signs that their body is naturally showing them, then they can start regulating themselves at a lower number. And when they can regulate themselves at a lower number, you're able to talk to them Mm -hmm. without them being in a heightened state. You're then able to talk through, well, what kinds of thoughts are are you having? And they're more receptive to it. So that's, that's uh, the, the first thing that I would do with kids specifically. And I use that, that with adults as well. Um, because like I said, I know before an apple and orange, but these skills translate whether you're eight years old or whether you're 80. So really starting to regulate and notice your body so that then you're in a clearer state of mind so you can then challenge your thoughts. We've, we've said that before, like the people that are coaches that have gone through the CrossFit kids program are the best adult coaches as well, because they can take complex topics and and movement patterns and break it down into something simple that almost everyone can understand. So, um, yeah, I get you when you say working with kids would make it easier (laughs) to, to work with adults because you know, you understand the real and raw emotions when when they start to be created in a mm-hmm. child's mind, they just amplify or evolve as you age and, and turn into an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, can you? I'd like you. To, so, where do I want to go? Uh, you mentioned earlier cognitive behavioral therapy. Yes. Briefly tell us what that is, mm-hmm. and then how do you use it? Like what, what does it look like in, in practice? Mm -hmm. So cognitive behavior therapy kind of came about after all the research has, has had started on behavior therapy. Um, and I believe it was Aaron Beck 
around the 1950s, he started exploring, okay, well, maybe there's something else here for how we can help control some of our behaviors or change our behaviors. And he started to link the fact that our behaviors often get impacted by our emotions. Okay, well, then it opens up the door of, well, where do these emotions come from? And oftentimes emotions come from the very thoughts that we have. So cognitive behavior therapy literally means thoughts, cognitive, how your thoughts impact how you feel. And that can sometimes come out in your behavior. So, I mean, some examples of this could be, I'm thinking, you know, I'm thinking like a high school, a high school student is all excited for a party. And all of a sudden somebody in class, maybe an acquaintance of theirs, rolls their eyes at them. Well, then all of a sudden this person might start thinking, oh, that, that girl doesn't like me. I think she's going to the party. I was really looking forward to going to the party, but now, I mean, I don't want to go if, like, she doesn't like me. And then the result could be she doesn't go to the party because she got in her head about uh, an initial thought that she had which impacted how she felt. And then, therefore, the things she wanted to do, she didn't do. It sounds like mind reading. It does. (laughs) It seems like you know a little bit about this. <laughs> a little bit. A little bit. I love that. And um, it just opens up the conversation of, okay, what are these thoughts that we have that impact how we feel, that can impact our behavior in positive and negative ways? So anxiety, when we think about it, sometimes anxiety and these, these irrational thoughts or irrational beliefs can really impact us in negative ways and that's what we want to focus on we don't want our thoughts to impact us in negative ways we want our thoughts to be positive like we want our behaviors to be actionable things that you know point us towards joy and happiness and being able to like work towards our goals we don't want our behaviors to be things that we feel like are holding us back um i mean if i believed every single thought that popped into my head, I don't think that I would have my master's degree. <laughs> I don't know if I would have married my husband. I don't know if I would have been able to make some of the decisions in my life that I have if I believed every single thought that popped into my head. And the reality is not every thought that we have is true. Yes. Okay. Perfect. Great segue. Because <laughs> I just wrote down two sentences. Okay. I have negative thoughts mm-hmm. versus I experience negative thoughts. Mm. They're different. When you say that you have negative thoughts, it's like you own them. They are a part of you and your whole being. Yeah. But when you experience negative thoughts, it they're not yours. You don't own those thoughts. You're, they're just traveling and you're experiencing, experiencing mm-hmm. them as, as they pass through. Mm-hmm. Much like clouds. Yeah. Clouds just pass by. You have the choice in whether or not you chase that cloud down or you can let that cloud float by. Mm-hmm. Just like you have the choice to let negative thoughts go on by. You don't have to react to every thought that comes in your head because like you said, if you did what would you have missed out on? 
Mm-hmm. It just doesn't make any sense. Right. Right. Yeah. And we have thousands, thousands of thoughts that pop into our head on a day to day basis. Right. That's a lot of thoughts. Yeah. If we had a dollar for every thought that we had, you know, I think we would all be quite, <laughs> we'd be doing pretty well. But that doesn't mean that every thought is one that is true. And we have to be able to challenge those thoughts. This concept is so, like, <laughs> it makes me laugh because it seems so, like, duh. But we don't challenge our thoughts. Our tendency is to just have a thought and start to believe it instead of w- saying, wait a minute, what's happening right now? Where is the evidence that this thought is actually true? You know, and it, and I think that this is, is so exciting when I'm working with people who are like, yeah, yeah, I have tons of thoughts in the day that make me anxious, that make me spiral. I can't sleep. And I'm like, okay, well, let's let's explore them. Tell me about them. So I get people to start noticing like when, what times of the day are these thoughts maybe you're like you're starting to notice. Yep. A lot of times it's maybe in high pressure situations. I mean, it could be at work where we feel like we have to be on, we have to be our best version of ourselves. And sometimes the, that pressure, all of a sudden we have a thought, I'm not good enough. I can't give that presentation. I can't memorize my lines for the show. And those thoughts are just thoughts. We don't have evidence that that is true. And I think it's really important that when I'm, work- when I'm working with people, that we just start acknowledging what are the patterns where you notice your anxiety creeps in. Is it when you're laying in bed at night? Is it when you can't go to the gym or run to the store or call up a friend and ask them to come over and watch a movie? You know, is it in the middle of the night? And a lot of the times... The evenings are where a lot of these thoughts will keep people up at night, right? And it makes sense because we're in our beds, we're cozy, it's dark, and we're left with our own mind. When I took in my precision nutrition level two, it's um, a lot of that course is based on motivational interviewing and diving into the behaviors and the behavior change that happens when somebody wants to make any type of change. This one was specific to nutrition, but it's really any healthy habit that you want to develop. And the strategy that they used, or they've called this, is noticing and naming. Mm -hmm. And that's directly pulled from from what you just said is cognitive behavioral therapy. When you you label it and put a name, and you brought this lovely handout here Mm -hmm. with common thinking traps. Yeah. You're noticing, okay, what is this? And now you're putting a name to it. Oh, wait, I'm mind reading. I'm assuming what that person is thinking without any actual evidence that they're actually thinking that. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's an important component when it comes to behavior change in developing a new habit or even breaking a current habit Mm -hmm. is noticing and naming what's going on. Mm -hmm. And like you said, it's the patterns we have one that's um, it's a behavior pattern um, sheet that goes with uh, episodes of overeating. So if you have an overeating episode, what, where were you? What were you doing? What time of day was it? Who was around you? What were you feeling at the time? Two hours before, and then an hour before, and then five minutes before, and then during, and then an hour after. 
And if you notice, well, damn, it seems to be every Friday at four o'clock. Mm. Okay, well, what's who's around you? What well, seems to be this bad influence that I always seem to get caught up with after mm-hmm. work? Okay, well, now it's we know it's something in your environment that you can have access to changing. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I totally relate to this. And how how do we get somebody that's starting to feel that? to practice this mm-hmm. how, how does this get into actual use yeah I love that you asked that because part of it is you have to spend time learning about it right and I tell clients all the time whether they're eight whether they're 80 I tell them once you know about this yeah. you can't unsee it you know it's like that car accident on the side of the road once you see it you're thinking about it as you drive by or you're driving a little slower If I say to you, Kevin, did you see that pink truck driving around Moncton? You're like, I haven't seen a pink truck. And then all of a sudden you leave work and what do you start seeing everywhere? A pink truck. Your brain now starts looking for these things. It's your reticular activating system. That's the name for it. (laughs) There you go. Look, see, we're learning so much together. So I think that's the most exciting thing for me is like walking people through the names of these thoughts. In the same way that there's different names for cars. You know, we can identify a Ford, a Chev, a Tesla. Your thoughts are exactly the same. Wow, okay. When you just said that, I'm like, you can even identify cars based on the sound of when they start up. (laughs) Yeah. Like, you can identify these thinking traps based on where do you feel it Mm -hmm. or how how hot is your face Yes. or do you feel it in your back or your stomach or your chest? What is that emotion? How does that feel? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I love that connection. Mm -hmm. I like car analogies. There you go. (laughs) I didn't even know that about you. Yes, 100%. Lots of learning. So what I'd like to do is just kind of walk people through some really common thinking traps. Let's do it. um, Because I believe knowledge is power. Once you can put a little label on what thought you are having, I promise you, I promise you, you are going to start seeing these pop up and you're more likely to be able to challenge your thought and catch yourself before or maybe even a little bit during the actual thinking spiral that's making you anxious. This thing takes practice, okay? Mm -hmm. So what I want to tell people right out of the gate is if you have pressure on yourself to like get this right the first time around, I'm going to go through a list of, of thoughts and I'm going to name them. You're, you're not going to catch yourself every single time. Okay. I've been practicing cognitive behavior therapy on myself now for the last few years. And I can guarantee I do not catch every single spiraling thought, but I'm a lot better than I was. Right. And even if you can catch a thought and name it the day after, Oh, I had a, uh, a battle with anxiety yesterday. Well, what was, what was happening? What was the thought that sent me on this spiral? Ah, it's mind reading. I call that closing the gap. Mm-hmm. I've, I've talked about that before as well. The, the, let's say, like you just said, let's say it's 24 hours later. Okay, yeah. cool. And then the next time you do it, it's 20 hours later. Yeah. And then you're closing that gap until you can identify it before that thing happens. Mm-hmm. And so you're actually behind behind the eight ball instead of always playing yeah. ahead of it. So yeah. I love it. And I'm I'm geeking out over this right now. Like I mean my energy, I'm starting my heart rate is going up because I'm so passionate about this. Um but I really just want to go through this list so that people know what they're called. So if you're listening, maybe get out your notepad, take some notes. 
because um, these are some really common thinking traps that we fall into. Um, a resource that I, I really tend to point people towards is Anxiety Canada. So is this on their website? This is okay. from their website. Yeah. I'm going to link this in the show notes so people can just click and go to it. Perfect. So it's, it'll be there for everybody that wants it. I love it. And what this is, is a really user-friendly cheat sheet on what the different thinking traps are. It gives some examples. And I love these examples because I'm a firm believer in breaking things down. Um, the examples might seem a little juvenile. They might seem maybe that it doesn't apply to like adult situations. But like I said before, I mean, these little little things, these juvenile spirals that we might go on can still impact our behavior, right? And so I love using language that everybody can understand instead of giving a resource where people might just think, well, what does that word mean? Oh, that doesn't really apply to me because I don't really understand what they're saying. This link from Anxiety Canada, this table, this chart, I just, I love it. I give it to my clients and I tell them to take pictures of it, photocopy it, put it all around their house as they're learning what these thinking traps are because I just love the way they've broken it down. Um, so that being said, the first common thinking trap is called fortune telling. Here's let's play Let's play this the way. Let's play this game. I'll, I'll say the examples and then okay. you, you identify it and tell us what it is. So here, you, we, we'll mess up with the first one. I'll, I'll go. So the example is, I, I just know I'll mess up mm. or man, I'll never be able to manage my anxiety. So that is, that's fortune telling. Yes. So when you are fortune telling, or it's also called crystal balling. Mm -hmm. So if you were to Google cognitive behavior therapy and ask for a list of common thinking traps, they might call it fortune telling. They might call it crystal balling. It's exactly what it sounds like. Okay. So that is when you are predicting that things will turn out badly. But in reality, we can't predict the future because we don't have a crystal ball. All right. So saying things like, I will never be able to manage my anxiety. Well, see, that's, that's I, I see this from talking. A, I see this from a language point. Hmm. Like never is binary language. Hmm. So is always. I always mess up. Always? Like yeah. every single time? Mm-hmm. Well, you made it here today. So you did something right. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I like playing with the words, obviously. So yeah. that's how I would address it. Like, well, let, let's get rid of that binary language. Mm-hmm. Like, I might be able to sometimes manage my anxiety. Cool. That's better than never. Mm -hmm. Hell of a lot better. So Yeah. Or if I go to this party, I just know everybody is going to be judging me. Well, we don't really know that for a fact because we're not at the party yet. Yeah. I'm not going to know anybody there. Well, you're not there yet. You don't know that. (laughs) And it sounds, again, we've got these big smiles on our faces Mm. as we talk about it because when we actually break it down, we realize how ridiculous it is. Silly, yeah. And that's why we call it, it's irrational. Correct. Right? It's this irrational belief. But, I mean, Anxiety Canada, I love their term. They use thinking traps. Yeah. um, Which, again, just makes it, that's exactly what it is. You're stuck. You're stuck in a way of thinking. So fortune telling, it's when you're predicting that something is going to turn out in a way that is likely going to be bad. And the reality is we do not know. We're not there yet. Living in the future. Yeah. All right, next examples. Anything less than perfect is a failure. Or I plan to eat only healthy foods, but I had a piece of chocolate cake 
Now my diet is completely ruined. <laughs> yes. So I see what it's labeled as, and I, I have it another term for it. Right? Yeah, yeah, we can explore that too. Yeah. So I would call this uh, black and white thinking. And it's also known as like all or nothing. That's the one. Thinking that's what you were thinking of. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And that's when we only look at situations in terms of extremes. So for example, things are either really good or really bad. It's either a success or a failure. But the reality is most events call for a more moderate explanation. So cheating once on your diet doesn't mean you failed completely. You had a small setback. And all you need to do is get back on your diet tomorrow. So when you're having this black and white thinking, when you're falling into that, it's not hard to see how that's going to add to your anxiety. It's not hard to see how that's going to impact the way that you view yourself, right? You're probably going to be really harsh and not compassionate with yourself when you're saying I failed something completely. When in, yeah, yeah. sorry, you were going to say no, something. No, it's... The, the analogy I use, it, it's again, it's a car analogy. Okay. But let's say you're driving to work and you get a flat tire. Do you then go out and pop the other three? It doesn't make any sense. Why would you do that? Oh, well, one tire's flat. Might as well make them all flat. Fuck it. Everything else is screwed up. So <laughs> That's so good. Right? Yeah. The other one, one I use is with a phone. So let's say you drop your phone on the floor and it gets a crack. Well, phone's ruined. Might as well smash it with a hammer. Because mm -hmm. a lot of people do that. They're like, well, I, I screwed up my diet at lunch. I might as well screw it up for the rest of the day. Hmm. And they continue that black and white thinking or that all or nothing thinking into the future. Mm -hmm. When, you know, as you said, you can just, the next decision you make can be a better decision. Mm -hmm. It doesn't always have to be this all or nothing or good or bad. Mm -hmm. We talk about that too with foods. Like food doesn't fall into this good bucket or bad bucket. It always falls on a spectrum. Everything in life falls on a spectrum. And so if, if you had a, a poor choice this time, how can you make that choice a little bit better the next time? Mm -hmm. And it might be, I'm going to have the same choice, but less, right? So instead of having five pieces of cake, I'm going to have two. Mm -hmm. Like there's yeah. just so many different ways of taking it from that all or nothing into more of like a managed approach. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what we want to do. We need to manage it. Yeah. Because there's more moderation. There's a more moderate answer or like rationality for things than just success failure. Yeah. Yeah. We have sure. to be open to that middle ground. Cool. Awesome. Uh, next one. Others think I'm stupid or she just doesn't like me. Hmm. Sounds like mind reading to me. Pretty much so. <laughs> and I know we kind of hinted at this one earlier. A good example of this would be, um, you know, I have, I know a person who just doesn't want to go to the gym because they're really concerned that, you know, people are laughing at them. Yep. We hear it all the time. Right. And so mind reading, this trap happens when we believe that we know what others are thinking and we assume that they're thinking the worst of us. But the problem here is that no one can read minds, so we don't really know what others are thinking. And again, it sounds so laughable to like spell it out like this, but how many times do we fall, find ourselves falling into this trap of wondering what somebody else thinks of us? You know? I wonder if that, a lot of that in my enlifted training um, is a fear of being seen. A lot of it, it, 
stems to that because what I what I'm thinking is I had somebody this morning and she, like once she left the office she did not want to be seen. Oh my god, what are they gonna think? They're gonna think that I'm you know a complete mess. No, nobody's gonna think that. They're doing their own workout. They're focused on them and themselves not dying in mm-hmm. the middle of a workout. <laughs> They're not even looking at you. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And I it's I find it's that fear of being seen for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and that a lot of that like acting. Mm-hmm. What if I screw up? Others they're gonna they're gonna laugh at me if I if I mess up. Mm-hmm. Well, we messed up mm-hmm. many times on stage. Yeah. And nobody knew. <laughs> yeah. We knew, but nobody else did. <laughs> right. And so this is that mind reading trap. Like, oh, they're gonna they're gonna think that I, I don't know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. A lot of that comes down to um, like imposter syndrome as well. Sure. Right. Yep. And I can also link this um, when I have clients who identify that this is a, a, a thinking trap they fall into. Um, we start doing a lot of work with self esteem, too. Is okay. Well, what if? you know, somebody saw you. Like, why is that such a bad thing? Yeah. Like oftentimes this this irrational thought, this thinking trap can mask some of our other insecurities that we really need to, to bring to light and start talking about. Because, I mean, if somebody sees you or hmm. not, that's probably not a, like a life and death situation, right? And so is that worth our time? Well, I like that. Because the example that you, it, it, it's given here, she doesn't like me, mm-hmm. okay? So what if she doesn't like you? Mm-hmm. then what like and why, an- answer the question why is there this desire to be liked sure. right so there's the, the these thinking traps really lead to some other oh yes insecurities that we need to dive into too these are definitely starting points yeah for sure yeah, yeah. but all right next one i always make mistakes i am never good at public speaking mm. this thinking trap is called overgeneralization Okay, so this is when we use words like always or never to describe situations or events. Get rid of them. Yeah. But this type of thinking is not helpful because it doesn't take all situations or events into account. So for example, sometimes we make mistakes, but we don't always make mistakes. And just to point it back to like, yeah, this example, I always make mistakes. Well, can you think of a time where you actually did something really good? Okay, and right there, you're proving to yourself, you're starting to reframe that, oh yeah, (laughs) it's not always. I don't know why we like to use these really like definitive like words when they're just not true. It's, uh, there's a word for it, Uh, embellish. Mm -hmm. People want to, and it's that self-depreciation. They want to embellish that and it's that, it's it's negative self-talk. Yeah. Right? I always screw it up. Like every single time, I'm sure there's instances where you didn't screw it up, mm-hmm. right? Yep. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, it's, I call it bi- always and never. It's part of binary language. Yeah. And we replace it with other softer words that allow some flexibility and freedom mm-hmm. within that sentence. Just like you said, you know, I, I sometimes make mistakes versus I always make mistakes. Which one sounds better to say? Which one mm. feels better to say? Yeah. Well, I, I sometimes make mistakes. Cool. Guess what? We all do. Yeah. We all sometimes make mistakes. And then what? Yeah. You have the opportunity to learn from those mistakes. Mm-hmm. And learn how to add grace mm-hmm. for yourself. 
sure. usually it's easier to add grace for somebody towards somebody else but for whatever reason it's really hard to put grace so point that's, it towards us we were talking about that before of like um what would i tell a friend if he or she had that same thought mm-hmm. what would you tell a kid if they say that they always screw up exactly man that's it's different yeah it hits tell, different tell, Tell me what, tell them what you told me mm. when we talked about that. Cause when you, as soon as you said, when you say a kid, what yeah. would I tell a kid? That mm. was powerful what you said. Well, if I'm working with somebody like an, an, an adult, especially, or even a parent, you know, it's really hard for us to start to add compassion towards ourselves, to speak kindly about ourselves, to not be as judgmental or as hard on ourselves. And so asking that question, okay, think about your best friend, think about your partner, the person you love more than anybody else in the world. If they said that, if they used that kind of language about themselves, what would you say? And people look at me and they say, well, I would look at them and be like, that's not true. And I say, okay, now think about your child. Think about, think about a four-year-old or a three-year-old. They're just learning to play basketball. And they say, I can't do this. Like I always miss the basket. What would you say to that child? And when you start to frame it, okay, speaking to a child, we we tend to soften, right? We're, we tend to be harder on ourselves mm-hmm. and we tend to be hard on other adults because, you know, we're living in this big bad world and we're all in it together. And But when we think about children, you know, a vulnerable population, We've got, you know, our elderly, we've got our, our youth, our, our, our young. It hits different because we don't want to set that child up to believe that they can't do something. So the language that we use with a child, I often challenge people to imagine, well, what if that were you? If you were the child, what would you say to four-year-old Kevin who's really struggling with lifting this weight? And it hits different. Yeah. And that, I mean, that could be a podcast for another time about like working with the inner child, but it, it is really important to remember the language we use with ourself is often harsher than it needs to be. So framing it in a way, well, what would you say to somebody else, a best friend, a partner? What would you say to a child can just increase that compassion? I saw a video. It's uh, Wentworth Miller. He's from um, Prison Break. Prison Break. Yeah. yeah. He was at some presentation he was being asked questions and stuff and in it he says if i talk to my friends the way i talk to myself i would have no friends Hmm. and so that's a reminder for me to talk to myself with nourishing and supportive words and for him that that was the only perspective shift that he needed Hmm. to change his inner dialogue and his inner thoughts so yeah yeah 100%. 100%. Powerful stuff. Yeah. Uh, next one. <laughs> Do it. People say this? Yeah. No, actually say this. <laughs> I'm stupid. Oh, I'm such a loser. Yeah. That is a classic case of labeling. I guess another one would be like, uh, I'm a total screw up. Yeah. Yeah. I can mm-hmm. see that one happen. I'm unlovable. I'm worthless. Mm-hmm. So sometimes we talk to ourselves in really mean ways and we use a single negative word to describe ourselves. This kind of thinking is unhelpful, and quite frankly, it's unfair, because we're too complex to be summed up in a single word. 
I mean, to say I'm only a loser, I'm only worthless, I'm only unlovable. There are so many other aspects of us that we are not looking at. And even the the label that we're putting on ourselves, it's negative. We need to challenge it because that's a thought that we're having. I had this this person come in one day and um, they literally used this example. They said, I'm stupid. And I said, where does that label come from? And they told me this heartbreaking story about being in grade two and unfortunately they had an experience with a teacher and the teacher used that language towards them they said you're stupid and I remember looking at the client and I said okay so a teacher put a label on you look around the room now 40 years later where's that teacher now And they looked at me and they just said, well, Bethany, they're not here. And I said, exactly. So at some point in these last 40 years, you decided to take that little hello, my name is label, that sticker. Yep. And you started putting it on yourself. And they just sat there and they really contemplated that. Because I don't know if it had ever been worded in that way to them before if they've never had that perspective at a certain point some someone may have said something to you that is a label but at a certain point we need to own the fact that we have started to believe it you know if somebody said to you over the course of years Kevin the grass is blue and then all your friends your partner Kevin the grass is blue the grass is blue And you're like, no, it's green. The grass is blue. And you keep hearing that over time. Sooner or later, you start to believe it. But repetition does not equal truth. And that's why with cognitive behavior therapy, we have to challenge our thoughts. And we have to really ask the question, what's the evidence? Yeah. So labeling. That one, I think, might hit home for a number of people. Um, Yeah, that one can be really personal. What the loser one, it's in in and lifted. They have a definition for that. What what is the definition of a loser? Hmm. And it's somebody that stares at the losses. Yeah. So what's the definition of a winner? And it's yeah. somebody that stares at the wins. That's good. And that means it's a practice. It's a habit. You have the habit of always staring at the losses or frequently staring at the losses. So you have the ability to change what Mm -hmm. you stare at. And it's what you just said, finding the evidence. Mm -hmm. So start writing down the times where you were a winner, Mm -hmm. where you came out on top, where you were resilient and pushed through something that was challenging. Mm -hmm. Write those down. You can't just think about them. You have to get those thoughts out of your head and put them on paper because Mm -hmm. then it's real. Thoughts are just... They're, they're, they're just in your head. So once you start writing those things down, then you can start staring at the winds mm-hmm. and you will be a winner and you'll start <laughs> thinking that way That's and right. then you'll start behaving that way because yes. when you think different, you behave different. Mm-hmm. Cognitive behavioral therapy, bam. Woo woo. Right. <laughs> uh, next one. I will faint. Ugh, I'll just go crazy. I'm dying. Mm, you probably hear that one a lot in your gym. <laughs> 
No. <laughs> well, so, sometimes it's accurate. The, yeah. the fainting one, actually. So. Oh, yeah. We actually had to have somebody, somebody today was in the middle of work and they actually had to sit down. So. Yeah. But that's. It can be pretty intense, eh? Yeah, yeah. I think what they mean here is just um, a heightened state of emotion. So we call this overestimating danger. So this is when we believe that something that's unlikely to happen is actually right around the corner. So when you're thinking like that, it's not hard to see how this type of thinking can maintain your anxiety. So how can you not feel scared if you think that you could have a heart attack at any time? Mm. Right? So this one can just be like, it's like constant throughout your day. Right? Maybe heart attacks run in the family. And so there's this fear. Every time you feel a twinge, it's like, oh my God. I'm dying. I'm having a heart attack. Well, no, let's, let's pause our thought right now. Let's not let the snowball get bigger. Let's not let it roll down the hill. Okay. Let's start to challenge that way of thinking. Okay. Am I safe? Do I have access to somebody who can help me? Right? Like let's just acknowledge and be present in the here and now. And it's not hard to see how overestimating danger can almost be Um, set you up for another thinking trap like fortune telling where Mm. you're predicting the future right and that's what we mean when we talk about spiraling thoughts you might just have an initial thought but then all of a sudden before you know it you're going from overestimating danger to um, fortune telling to labeling yourself right so it's really important that we acknowledge the thought in the here and now and just start again like identifying a car we have to just be able to put like the actual term to the type of thought that we're having because it's not hard to see how this just keeps you in a constant state of well no I can't go to the gym because if my heart beats any faster I'll have a heart attack okay well if I believed that I was going to get in a car and every time I got in a car I'd get in a car accident I I would not be able to go anywhere right I wouldn't be able to do the things that I love So we can't allow ourselves to live in that constant state of anxiety. Yeah, that that would be one that keeps people stuck. Yeah. Like in their place and unmoving. So Yeah. Yeah. And oftentimes is related to like a fear. Um, Sometimes even like some PTSD. Sometimes like there's a deeper, again, a deeper underlying issue that needs to be talked about here for where this fear, where this thought actually comes from. Yeah. Uh, next one, believing that you did a poor job on a presentation because some people looked bored, even though a number of people look interested and you receive several compliments on how well you did. Mm. Hmm. <laughs> this, I have to be completely honest here. Um, this is a thinking trap that I fall into a lot. It's called filtering and it's where we only pay attention to the bad things that happen, but we ignore all the good things. And this prevents us from looking at all aspects of a situation and drawing a more balanced conclusion. Okay, and I don't know, I, I don't know statistics on this, but I, I would bet my life savings on it. I do think as a woman, there's a lot of filtering happening in the mind of a woman, right? A lot of comparing, you know, oh, my husband told me that I looked beautiful, but it meant more when somebody else said it kind of thing. We're filtering things all the time. And when we filter things like we're not actually celebrating the wins like you say i mean i may have gotten the losses (laughs) yeah i may have got nine out of ten on a test and i'm drawing all my attention towards that one question i got wrong oh i can't believe i got that wrong i can't believe i dropped that one line i've never dropped that line in a play before 
instead of saying, wait a minute, we did all these other things amazing. Like you got nine out of 10 on a test. That's incredible. And how do you move forward, right? Filtering really holds us back. It holds us back from even applying for jobs. You know, you read a job description and maybe you've got six or seven out of 10 of the things that they're looking for and oh, I could never apply. And then maybe somebody applies who has five things off that checklist and they get the job because we have filtered ourselves to only focus on what we don't have instead of what we can bring to the table. So filtering. Yeah, that is a, I mean, that's, a, that one hits home personally to me. Yeah. And I see it all the time with people that, you know, you could have 10 positive comments and then one negative and you're going to, mm-hmm. you're going to hyper-focus on the one negative. Yeah. I'm in a gym mentorship group and uh, it's, it comes up often where somebody will get a negative Google review, one out of 147 reviews. And it's like, oh my God, I can't believe the, like, and they go into this spiral into like, they're only focusing on that. Well, what about the other 146 positive reviews that are five stars that say mm-hmm. how awesome everything is in your gym? Yeah. Let's, let's focus on that. Yeah. I mean, it, it happened to us. And then I went on the offensive. I, I replied. And then I was like, let's bury it. Mm-hmm. And so I just asked, hey, do you mind making a positive review for us on Facebook or on, on Google? And then and slowly and surely, that thing got buried. Mm-hmm. Cool. Don't need to focus on it. Yep. It's not going to do anything. I see a lot of um, this one with the teenagers I work with because of the impact of that social media has. Yeah. Well, that that thing, social media, whatever. The comments, yeah. Everything goes into all of this, mm-hmm. right? Like black and white thinking, mind reading yeah. on social media. Like, oh man, I can't post that because other people will think that it's dumb or it's stupid or, yeah. you know. I never make something that's valuable. So they're mm-hmm. overgeneralizing. Man, if yeah. social media could die, that'd be amazing. <laughs> if I had a magic wand, that'd be the one thing I'd get rid of. Yeah. All right. Uh, we got two more guys. I know it's a long episode, but we'll. this is hopefully very valuable. Uh, next one. I'll freak out and no one will help. I'm going to make such a fool of myself. Everyone will laugh at me and I won't be able to survive the embarrassment. Mm catastrophizing. This is when we imagine that the worst possible thing's about to happen and we predict that we won't be able to cope with the outcome. But the imagined worst case scenario, it usually never happens. And even if it did, we're most likely able to cope with it. (laughs) Okay, so catastrophizing. It literally has the the name (laughs) of like catastrophe in the very word. You know, I remember doing this when my husband was traveling and he's like, I'm going to text you when I get to Halifax. And he's really good with stuff like that. But for whatever reason, he couldn't leave until late at night. And I'm laying in bed just checking my phone constantly. And I have this thought, he's dead in a ditch. What am I going to do with the house? I'll never love again. And I know that we're smiling as we talk about it because it's... No, I'm smiling because I want my wife to listen to this right now. (laughs) This is you. (laughs) And so it took me probably 10 minutes. I was sweating. I was pacing. I was like checking my phone like uh, so many times. And then it dawned on me, huh, I'm anxious. What thinking trap am I falling into? Ah, I'm catastrophizing. I'm imagining the worst situation and that I'm not going to be able to cope with it. And as soon as I could put a label on that, as soon as I could name my thinking, 
all of a sudden, I could then deal with it. Okay, there's a chance he's dead in a ditch. Let's be honest, that could happen. But is it the most likely thing? Absolutely not. And then I laid in bed and I listed all the other areas or the things that could be happening. Maybe he's not there yet. Maybe he stopped for food. He's a chatty guy. Maybe he's talking with the hotel concierge. Maybe he forgot. Maybe he fell asleep at the hotel. All these things are very probable on top of him being dead in a ditch. So is it likely that it's the dead in the ditch situation? Or is it more likely it's one of these other seven things that I've listed? Maybe he got a flat tire, suffered from all or nothing thinking, <laughs> and popped the other four. The other tires, <laughs> Maybe. Right? You never know. Yeah. I, I often ask people this when they, when they are um, catastrophizing. How many bad days have you had in your life? Hmm. So put a number to it. Like I'll ask you, how many bad days have you had in your life? Ooh. Put a number. Golly. I've definitely had way more good days than bad. Putting a number. Yeah. Yeah. Just say how. Just I don't give, know. Me, give me a number. Doesn't matter. Yeah. Like 15. 15 bad days. How many of those did you survive? All of them. Perfect. <laughs> You're going to survive the next bad day that you have too. That's right. Right. Mm-hmm. So when you actually make people write down a number, mm-hmm. how many bad days have you, it could be, you write down a thousand. I've had a thousand bad days. Cool. Yeah. You survived, you survived all thousand all. of them. Yeah. And guess what? You're going to survive the next thousand too. <laughs> yeah. If, if that's even possible that you have another thousand bad days, mm-hmm. but even if it's two or three, you're going to survive those two. That's Don't right. worry. Yeah. And listeners, just for the record, I've had more than 15 bad days, but um, <laughs> yeah, for the sake of the exercise, we'll move on. There we go. <laughs> Uh, all right, last one. And this is, ooh, this one's a... Yeah. This one taps me pretty hard. I should never feel anxious. I must control my feelings. I should... Ooh, this, is a, hmm. I, this is a double whammy here. I should never make mistakes. Yeah. These are called should statements. We call it shooting all over yourself. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. I like that better. So this is when you tell yourself how you should, must, or ought to feel and behave. However, it's not actually how you feel or behave. Okay, so the result is that you're constantly anxious and disappointed with yourself and or with others around you. They should feel this way. Or th- mm-hmm. Why didn't they do it this way? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Another example, I had somebody who came in and they're, they're grieving the loss of a husband. Their husband passed away 11 years ago. And 11 years later... All of a sudden, they're hit with grief. And this woman looked at me and said, I shouldn't feel this way. I should be over this by now. And I just remember looking at her and saying, well, why? Who told you that? Yeah, this was your partner. Like, you raised children with this with this person. You looked after this person. Like... We're, we need to acknowledge how you actually feel in the here and now so that we can move forward. Beating yourself up over something you should do, you ought to, or you just think that you need to be past something, that is not helpful. It doesn't acknowledge anything about the situation in the here and now. And when the woman was able to actually sit and, and give herself that grace to feel the grief, she could then walk through it. And um, I think that's been just the most like impactful session I've had in regards to walking people through these should statements. 
um, <laughs> because like it just it hits right grief hits you no matter the time of day you could be having a great day and then all of a sudden a little reminder and bam there it is but we have to acknowledge the emotion in the here and now i we did a we call it the should detox i just did a talk uh yesterday uh, in saint john and i had everybody write down the <clears throat> words i should and then they filled in the rest of the statement and they were I say it can be personal, professional, relational, like anything that means something to you. And then I had, uh, I asked for a volunteer. One person said, raised her hand and gave her the mic and she read her should statement. And then I asked her, how does it make you feel to say it that way? And the words that came up were anxious, guilt, and shame. Mm. And I said, do you feel that anywhere in your body? She goes, yeah, my, like my upper back. It's like, okay. I did not know this lady. We did not chat beforehand. That's just the way it went. And then I had her rewrite the sentence by changing the word should to could. She reread the sentence and I said, how does it feel to say it that way? And she goes, optimistic. Ooh, so you could, that's interesting. Now we went from shame, guilt, and anxiety to optimistic. Hmm. I did not pay her to say that. That's just what came out. And that's the cool part of it. Like when I do that exercise with people, I have no idea how they're going to react or what, what's going to come out. And then we changed the could to can. I can not check. I think it was I not check my work um, emails after this conference. Mm. Amazing. How does it feel to say that? She goes, well, it's, it's just what I'm going to do. Like that's that's it. It's confirmed. I'm not going to do that. And the whole crowd just a uh, thunderous applause. For wow. Them. They're like, yes, you go girl. Boom, boom, boom. And then we supercharged it at the end with the word because, and she said, because my family is worth my time. Hmm. As I go, Hey, now, now it has meaning behind yeah. it. So that was, that's how I help people get rid of that shooting all over themselves hmm. is we just change the words. Yeah. Right. That's fantastic. I shouldn't feel anxious. Well, you, you could feel anxious, mm -hmm. but what else could you also feel? How do you want to feel? Well, I, I could feel better. Oh, cool. Let's change that to can. Well, I, I can feel better. Yeah. Add because. Well, I can feel better because I'm going to go for a walk later. Boom. You've just changed your behavior. Mm -hmm. You changed your thought from you shouldn't feel anxious to I can feel better and you identified an action to go do to help you with that. Yeah. Now your behavior is supporting your thoughts and your thoughts are supporting your behavior and you're well on your way to contentment. Yeah, beautiful. <laughs> yeah. And you just like hit the nail on the head with why we learn about these thoughts. We need to reframe them. Yeah. So now that we know what these thoughts are that we can really fall captive to or find ourselves being held up by, now we have to do something with it. We have to challenge it. So we look for the evidence that these thoughts are true. We challenge it. And then that final step is reframing our initial thought. Sometimes I make mistakes, but I don't always make mistakes. There's a chance my husband could be dead in a ditch, but it's more likely he's not there yet. Right? And this shift is just so much more positive, so much more optimistic. We're acknowledging our initial thought, but then we're challenging it. We're not staying in it, okay? So ways that you can challenge your negative thinking is by asking yourself, number one, am I falling into a thinking trap? 
Which one is it? Catastrophizing, filtering, labeling, mind reading. And once you can identify it, now you can do something with it. And then you can start to say, well, am I 100% sure that this thought is true? Am I 100% sure that the grass is blue like Bethany's been telling me my whole life? (laughs) Let's challenge it. Let's ask some other people. Let's go out and look. Let's do something about it. Have I confused a thought with a fact? So you see this language now, we're just really in the challenging, like, let's not believe every single thing that pops into our head. Because that's going to hold us back. The fact that you summed it up with, what what are you going to do next? Mm -hmm. That's, That's the point of this podcast. It's not about inspiration. It's about practical resiliency. And so I'd love to hear what your definition of resiliency is. Mm. I don't know where I read this. I don't know if this was like a Kobe Bryant or something. <laughs> I have no idea. But it was this thing where it's like you fall down seven times and you stand up eight. You know, it's this, it's a grit. It's a choose, it's a choice to not live in this negative space. It's a choice to fight for yourself. Um, and it's a choice to just, to, to pursue happiness you're using the word choice you're like you're 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 singing my tunes here Mm. that's exactly when people recognize that it is a choice and we talked beforehand about that uh, before we started recording that sphere of control Mm -hmm. when you focus on the things that are within your control now you have choices those Mm -hmm. are the things that you can choose to focus on and it's always things that you can do when you focus on the things that you have no control over that's where anxiety is going to kick in. Mm-hmm. I don't have control over the weather. Why am I focusing on it? Ah, mm-hmm. uh, it's raining or uh, it's snowing. What 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 energy are you putting out there when you're focusing on something that you have absolutely no control over? Yeah. So look at the things that you do have control over, like your choices and your way of reacting to certain things, or you're noticing and naming these emotions, and then what can you do next? Those are all things that are within your control, mm-hmm. and then. In essence, or as a result, you don't go down that negative vortex spiral mm-hmm. into the dark abyss of anxiety and depression. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, Bethany, I'd like to sum up. Well, I, I always ask this last question: If there was one thing or one piece of practical advice that you could give somebody to become a more resilient human, what would that advice be? Mm. I think just like being honest with yourself. I think that grounds you. It how? helps ground your emotions. So like, how does somebody do that? Practice. <laughs> Spoken like a true teacher. <laughs> yeah. Practice. I mean, all perfect. of these things that we've gone, gone over today, I mean, it takes practice. Yeah. Right? We can't give up. We have to believe in ourselves. Um, we have to fight for taking captive every thought that we have. We have to choose to continue. We have to choose to try. And and if we want to feel different, we have to do different. Um, So like you say, everything is a choice. Um, And I really believe that when you know which thinking traps that you tend to fall into, like now you're not going to be able to unsee it, right? It's just like the soft talk words that I have on the wall. Like now that they're there, I see them and I hear them mm-hmm. everywhere. And I'm well aware of when I say those words. Mm-hmm. You can't, it, you can't unsee them. You can't, can't unhear unsee them. 
Yeah. Yeah. Love it. Bethany, thanks for coming in. I know we just touched on a few things here. Um, so we're definitely gonna have you back because this, it has to happen. Um, there's much more we can dive into. I'd love to get into, you know, in a future episode, how parents can support their kids through these times of anxiety and whatnot. So yeah, you're definitely coming back and you don't have a choice. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. All right. Thanks for coming in. I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, see you next time. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest episodes, be sure to subscribe and I'll see you next time.